Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, my guest today is world-renowned speaker Chris Widener. Um, so Chris had an interesting background. Uh, it wasn't easy for him growing up, uh, but he persevered and got his college degree and began speaking, uh, eventually rising up the ranks and becoming one of the best speakers in the business. Uh, plus, he wrote books, he had a TV show, and some other businesses. And when you think of motivational speakers, most people think of Tony Robbins. Well, Tony's uh, mentor was Jim Rohn, and Chris not only worked with Jim Rohn, Jim Rohn was Chris's mentor as well. They actually wrote a book, a couple books together, I believe. Uh, one was The 12 Pillars of Success, which is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, he also, Chris also had a TV show with Zig Ziglar, who was also a very big name in the motivational uh, success business. Uh, it was really fun chatting with Chris, very educational. Listen to the advice he gives because obviously he's a very successful person and he studied this stuff and he's been mentored by some of the best in the business. Um, I apologize for the audio on this one. We did a Zoom call. I've never done that before. So I recorded it through Zoom. So the audio is not great. I've never tried that before. I, it is. It will have video that will be posted up uh, on my YouTube channel eventually. Uh, but the audio is, is a little... Uh, not the greatest, but it's still decipherable. You should be able to understand it and hear it. So it's not the worst either. So hopefully you enjoy it. Thank you. So welcome to my show here. Um, so it's cool because you grew up uh, in Seattle, same as me. So are you a Seahawks fan then? I am. Yep. Uh, Seahawks fan. Do you prefer Charles or Chuck? Chuck. Okay. That's what I thought. It says Charles yeah. there, but I thought it was Chuck. Um, I am a Seahawks fan. I'm more of a Mariners fan. My My best friend is the president of the Seattle Mariners and I've wow! Since he, yeah, he he. This is his fifth or sixth year as the president. He spent eighteen as the CFO, and and I met him when we were both young guys in our early thirties in in Seattle. We both lived in Issaquah, and his wife was in some Bible study with my wife, and somehow we met. And so that's very cool. Yeah. So let's tie. Is that if that's okay with you? I'd like to get kind of your whole story. This is what I do. I don't know if you listen to my podcast, but I get people's kind of background, their life story, because your story is actually yep. really interesting. Besides just growing up in Seattle and, and, and Issaquah, where I'm from too. Um, I mean, you had kind of a rough childhood. So, uh, you know, your dad died when you were four. You probably don't even remember that. And then uh, your mom worked in I, real estate. Oh, you do? I remember coming home from school. I was in kindergarten, uh, preschool. I remember coming home I remember walking into a big, like, um, it wasn't our living room, but it was like a den. And there was like eight or nine of my family members there. And my uncle John was there and I walked up to him and I said, you know, what, what's going on? He said, your dad died today. I'll never forget. I still can remember where I was standing and everything. When my uncle John told me that my dad had died that day. Wow. That's, so that's yeah. obviously a very traumatic thing to happen. And then on top of that, your mom was in real estate. So you guys would buy these houses and then sell, and fix them up and sell them. So you, you move like, 20, you moved 28 times, or I, uh, you moved 11, you went to 11 different schools. So you obviously moved a lot. Um, and I used to work in the school. So I know how hard that can be. The change can be on kids. So, but you tell me your experience with that. What was it like having to move schools and move uh, houses so much? Um, actually, you know, one of the big things that I teach people is everything is based on your perspective and any situation can have multiple perspectives, right? So, in my circumstance, using this particular one, you can say, oh, that's really too bad. That's terrible. But I look at it as I have learned that I can go into any situation, anywhere, not knowing anybody and make new friends. That's what moving so many times taught me how to do. That's what being thrown into a new school every year, year and a half, two years taught me. And so um, 
I suppose that it was probably tumultuous, but that's not what I remember from it. What I really remember from it is I still have friends from the third grade that I'm still friends with on Facebook, even though I only went to school with them for a year and a half. Uh, wow. A guy named Mark and a guy named Bobby. And the three of us, uh, we, were, we were inseparable in the third grade. And then halfway through the fourth grade, I moved. I'm still friends with those two guys to this wow. day. So it was, in a way, it was a strength for you, you because you learned how to yeah. adapt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true in any one of our circumstances. You know, I talk about the mother of drunk drivers, the lady that started Mother Against Drunk Drivers. Uh, I can't think of a more horrific thing to happen than to have to bury one of your children. Um, and I'm sure she still hurts to this day. But you know what she did? She said, somebody needs to step up and make sure this doesn't happen again. And she redirected all of that negative, hurtful energy into something really positive. And, and that is really truly one of my core beliefs is, is there are multiple perspectives to any situation and successful people choose the most positive or optimistic uh, perspective in order to drive themselves through it rather than being buckled up underneath of it. Yeah, but so besides moving, I mean, you really did face a lot of adversity you've overcome because besides just the moving, you actually had to go live with your aunt and uncle for like a, for about 18 months because you were such a trouble kid. And they, so your mom uh, put, you know, dropped you off at your aunt and uncle's and, I mean, that must have been traumatic as well. That's another thing where you're just like, wait, so my dad died, we've moved a bunch, and now I'm living with an aunt and uncle. So what was, what was that like going through that experience? Well, my, my Aunt Rochelle and my Uncle Paul were uh, rough characters. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the real downsides to my upbringing was my mom had, I'm, I'm convinced now posthumously after she's passed away, I, I, I'm convinced she had what was called borderline personality disorder. My mom was both the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me. On one hand, she would tell me what a horrible, rotten piece of whatever I was. On the other hand, she'd tell me you can do anything you want in life. Um, and I can remember her walking me into a bookstore and saying, if all these people wrote books, you could write books too. I was 12. Um, and I've written, I've got my 22nd book coming out this uh, November, right? So, yeah, that's awesome. Um, but living with my Aunt Rochelle and my Uncle Paul, they continued on with my mother's tradition of beating me. And so much so, um, I lived with them half of fourth grade, all of fifth grade, went back to live with my mom. And then like in the sixth grade, my Aunt Rochelle and my Uncle Paul got divorced. My Aunt Rochelle was my sister's husband. Uh, pardon me, my, sis, my mother's sister. Her husband was not a blood relative of mine. They got divorced, and I did not see my Uncle Paul again for 30-something years. Um, I got a phone call from one of his daughters, my cousin, one day saying, my dad's going to die in the next couple days. He's in the hospital here in Seattle. Would you come and see him? He'd like to see you. So I went down there. I had to have been 40, something like that. And he was nothing like I saw him. The last time I'd seen him, he was a big, burly, beard, you know, uh, log truck driver. He worked in the woods and drove mm -hmm. log trucks. He was, a, he was a bad boy. I mean, he was a good old boy, and he was a rough and tumble guy. Well, now he was bald. He had no teeth. He was, you know, he went from weighing 250 pounds to, to probably 170 pounds, and he was dying of cancer. And he profusely apologized to me for the ways that he had beat me and the physical abuse. And, and as I walked out of the hospital that day, I remember thinking to myself, that was really more for him than it was for me because yeah. I had already kind of come to grips with it. Moved on. Just realized, yeah. you know, people pass, people pass on what they had done to them for the most part, unless they make a, a choice. So, you know, mm -hmm. like for example, when I got married and we had our children, we had a rule, nothing but the hand, nothing but the butt. Because when I was growing up, you know, it was anything long and flexible anywhere on your body, they could hit you with it. So 
you know, I, I still, you know, as my kids were growing up, I believed in discipline and such. I just didn't let them run roughshod, but never anything but a hand and a swat on the butt, nothing yeah. else. Cause I, I wanted to change because my mom had been beaten by her dad and I'm sure he was beaten by his dad. And yeah. so, you know, we have to, we have to self aware enough to then say, how can I change this? Yeah, no, that is amazing. I didn't even know this about you. So um, another thing that, you know, was hard for you to overcome at a young age, you started getting into drugs and alcohol, which is obviously very common for a lot of people, especially with a rough background like that, a lot of pain in your life. So you, t- you, you were smoking opium, which, which sounds, I don't know a lot about that. It doesn't sound good, though. It sounds like it could have been kind of dangerous. So um, talk about your experience with that and how you got mixed up with all that stuff. Um, in the sixth grade, I lived across the street from the junior high drug dealer whose older brother was the high school drug dealer. And we all sat at the bus stop together every day. And uh, seventh grade, I think I was stoned probably every single day of, of school, probably had something to do with my 1.4 grade point average that year. Um, wow. And so it started by living literally across the street from these two brothers. One was in the seventh grade, one was in the the. the 11th grade, I think at the time. Um, and, and that's how I got involved with drugs. And then um, it just sort of moved out from there. I, I didn't like drugs in that I've never been the kind of guy who wants to be out of control. Uh, when I smoked opium in the eighth grade, I remember I was so high, I walked down the middle of the street in, in Ballard, which is a suburb of Seattle. Yeah, I think I it's Market Street. I was walking down the street in the middle of Market Street, which is a main thoroughfare. And I remember that night just going, I don't ever want to feel that way again. So, you know, um, it, it's not something that's that's good um, and nothing I ever wanted to get wrapped up in. But I think I was really just lost. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. when you're a kid mm-hmm. and you can't explain everything. Like when I look back at it, I was pretty angry, but I don't think that I thought of myself as angry. I don't think I thought of myself as sad or, you know, any of those kinds mm-hmm. of things. I think I was just a kid trying to make it through life. No information. Yeah. And, and really no mentors. And you were ta- so you're, you wanted to take risks because you figured why not? And these kids were doing drugs and they liked it. So just figured what the hell. There wasn't really anybody telling you not to do that or any role models that were uh, steering you in the right direction. No, dark- in fact, when I came home, this was my mother for you. My mother was a very laissez-faire, 1970s, bra-burning liberal, you know, do whatever <laughs> you want to do. I came home that night after being so high the first time I ever smoked opium, walking down the middle of the street, and I came home, and my mom said, how was your day? And I said, well, it really wasn't very good. And she said, why not? And I said, well, I smoked opium today. And, and now, most parents would go ballistic. Yeah, my, my mother would have killed me. Did you like it? My, my mother said, did you like it? And I said, uh-huh. no. And she said, well, don't ever do it again then. That was my mother's response to her, to her 13, 14 year old boy telling her he smoked a joint soaked in opium that day. Wow. That is crazy. So, I mean, but you were, you were getting in trouble and you were getting in trouble at school. So you had school because for a lot of kids, again, I worked in the school. So I know, you know, when kids are going through these tough times at home, they, they actually take solace in school. Cause that's the one place that's like, things are consistent. There's discipline. You you got to tell me about this. Um, this has got to be a record. Cause again, I worked in school, so I know how like kids get referrals and in 10th grade, you got 47 written referrals to the principal's office. How did they not suspend yeah, you, dated, you or kick you out? I dated the principal's daughter. And so I knew him pretty well. And, uh, wow. and, uh, and so on the last day of school, he called me in and I yeah. had, and he held up a stack of papers. 
And he said, do you know what these are? And I said, no. And he said, these are your written referrals to my office this year. And I said, how many are there? And he said, 47. We need to not have this happen next year. <laughs> yeah. But so they, his, they had patience with you and they turned on his school year. Calling me in was one yeah. of the priorities. Mm. But despite all this, despite the troubles, uh, the drugs and the alcohol, the trouble at school and all this stuff, you somehow, you got a job uh, working for the Sonics as a ball boy? That sounds like every yeah. kid's dream. Yeah, at 11 years old. How did yeah. you get that you know, job? Boy, I was popular from. So the guy that owned the Sonics at the time was a guy named Sam Shulman. And okay. Sam was in the movie business as well. And my dad was the fifth partner at MBB&J, which is one of the world's largest uh, architecture firms. They did the Seattle Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the Seattle Center. They did the Seattle Science Center. Uh, oh, okay. You know, all those white, curvy kind of yeah. building. Uh, they actually they actually just did either Google or Facebook's billion-dollar campus. I can't remember which one it was, but they did one of those two uh, major campuses. And so my dad hung around with kind of a lofty group of people. We lived in Sandpoint Country Club. I'm sure you know where that's at, mm-hmm. um, up there in North Seattle. Widely considered, at the time, the second most prestigious country club behind Broadmoor in Seattle, where all the old money lived. This was kind of the new money. And so he was friends with Sam Schulman's business partner. My dad dies at four. We were season ticket holders. My dad, coming from Seattle, you'll love this, and the, and the basketball fans will think this is mm-hmm. interesting. My dad was one of the first season ticket holders of the Sonics, 1967. Mm-hmm. We had four front row seats. We had four front row seats. Our, our feet were literally on the court when uh-huh. we sat there. Wow. And he bought them the first year, $2 a ticket. It cost us $8 a game to sit on the court. Oh. Uh, my mom kept those seats. And so I grew up going to these games. Like everybody saw yeah. me because I sat on the court because my it was just my mom and me. Okay. She sold the other two to, to my dad's sister and her son. And, uh, and so I was a big fan. Everybody saw me. And then um, when I turned 11, I was in the sixth grade, beginning of the sixth grade, my mom reached out to this friend of my dad's. He reached out to the owner, Sam Shulman. And Sam Shulman said, sure, we'll give him a job. And so I think he called Frank Furtado, the trainer, and said, you have a new ball boy. He'll be there tonight. So that's how I got my job with working oh, with the Sonics. And so you were able to hold on. The first year I worked there. Yeah. Go it's on. probably one of the few things that saved me. Yeah, uh, working for the Sonics, and then I was always in athletics. I played football, baseball, basketball. Oh, okay. I started all my all my teams. I was good. Those two things probably saved my life. Okay, gave me yeah. something to live for. So, despite the drugs and all the trouble, you're able to keep on this job with the Sonics, and you're able to play sports, and you're able to graduate high school. And it was about age 17 when you kind of like I don't know. You got to tell them about this moment because I don't think I hit this till I was in my maybe 30s or 40s, where you kind of had this realization like oh, I'm kind of going nowhere. I need to change my path in life. Most kids do not figure that out at 17. It takes, And some people I know in their 50s and 60s haven't figured it out. So how did you figure that out at such a young age? Yeah, so I um, was living in North Bend. Um, you know where North Bend is. Yeah, my brother lives there. And out at the base of Mount Si, lived out there. Beautiful. And um, I, uh, I spent the night with one of my my best friend, probably my best friend, and, and we were pot smoking buddies. And it was a Sunday morning, and his mother threw open the door at about 8 a.m. and said, get up, we're going to Sunday school. And I'm like, what in the world is Sunday school? I had no religious upbringing, nothing, like zip, zero, zip, nada. 
And I'm like, well, I've tried everything else. I'll try Sunday school. Besides, she's demanding we get up. So off we went. We went to a little church called Mount Si Lutheran at the corner of 8th and Ogle in North Bend. And uh, it was there that I met a youth minister, a good old boy from Montana, Helena, Montana. And he was just what I needed at that stage of my life. He was a good old boy. Uh, so he put his cowboy boots in my butt and told me, you're wasting your life because you got a lot to offer. But then he also opened up this whole concept of God to me and, and there being something bigger than me and, and a bigger purpose than me and, you know, all these kinds of things. And it began to open up my eyes to maybe a divine purpose for my life. Um, and so it was really kind of the, the combination of a good male role model. Um, yeah. My dad died. I didn't know either my grandpa's. My brother was 13 years older than me. He moved out when I was four, married a girl who didn't like my mom. And so I didn't see him much growing up. Mm. Uh, we're close now. We're good friends now. But yeah. I called him up when I went married. I called him up to be my best man. And he literally laughed. And I said, what? why are you laughing? And he goes, oh. he goes, he goes, you're serious. And I said, yeah, I'm serious. He goes, oh, I thought you were joking. He said, I would love to be your best man. And I said, well, you're my brother. I wasn't close to him at all. I barely knew yeah. him, but he was my brother. Right. And so I, I asked him to be my best man. And we're, we're very close now. But growing up, I didn't have any male role models, anybody older. And, and that's what this youth minister was for me, a great role model for a man and, and how to be a, a young man. And, and then just opening up the whole concept of God and, and the, the, the fact that this world is a lot bigger than just me. Mm-hmm. So, wow, that's huge. So then you kind of started getting on the right path. You did go to college, you got your degree in, I think, communications or something like that. And then um, did you do some other work before you, I know you started speaking in 1988. Did you do a little bit of work before that? Because how did you, I, you must have had a story was, to tell. I was a youth minister. Okay. I was in Northern New Jersey. And, uh, how did you get I out went, there? I, I went to college for one year in, um, in Minnesota. Okay. I, I did my transfer. I transferred out there for a year, moved back to Seattle. And during that year, I met a girl who was from that church in New Jersey. During our senior year, she went home for spring break and the pastor used to be her youth pastor. And he had her over for dinner and he said, we're looking for a youth minister. And she said, I know just the guy. And he called me up. It's the only interview for a job I've ever done in my entire life. And uh, wow. you didn't even was, have an interview for the Sonics job? Nope. They just told me to show up and I, I showed up. I mean, as wow. long as I could throw a towel and hit somebody three feet away, I was, I was golden. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so this is well, your first interview could, ever. Are you nervous? First interview? Um, no, I guess not. I, I don't really remember it that much. And <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they invited me out there. It was a really interesting little tiny church. It was about 80 people when I showed up, but they were some of the most successful business people in America. It was really kind of funny. The, the board made, the board was made up and I was on the board as sort of the youth representative, but the okay. board had the number two guy at Prudential, the number six guy at Exxon, uh, the, the former CEO of Sealand Corporation. There was a former quarterback from the NFL. I mean, just a really wow. wildly successful people. Uh, and a number of them took me under their wing and sort of were great mentors to me business wise, spiritually, you know, just life. 
Uh, and one of my first business mentors and mentors was a guy who was the CEO of Mars Candies. Uh, he wasn't at the time. He was senior vice president of Mars Candies. He ended up uh, becoming the, the president and CEO of Mars Candies uh, later on in 97 or something like that, 98. But um, it was really good for me. I moved back out to Seattle. But while I was being a youth minister, um, I was giving speeches because I was speaking at high schools, summer camps, colleges, uh, universities. Okay. Um, talking about overcoming, you know, bad up. You know, bad upbringings and things like that. Yeah. So, did you originally you just did it for free then, right? Speaking. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, free hundred dollars here and there. Okay. You know. So then, eventually, yeah. you started get being able to charge about five hundred bucks a speech. How long did it take you to get to that like five hundred dollars a speech? Because now you're basically a paid speaker. Yeah. Um, five years, probably four or five years. Wow. Then I started charging. And then every time I had a new book or I had a new success or, you know, something like that, I raised my fees uh, mm -hmm. over the course of my career. Yeah. And so then you started a publishing company, uh, American Business Network, which was later known as Made for Success. And you started, uh, yeah. you were also one of the first people uh, or, that got onto the internet. And, and that was kind of when the internet, there wasn't a lot of stuff out there. So you just decided you're going to start writing these articles on success and business and just give it away for free. And you wrote over like 450 yeah. articles over the course of time, right? Yeah. Cause I mean, it seems now everything is ubiquitous, right? Everybody, there's, you can find articles on anything in 1996, not so much. So, right. you know, people would put up a website, but they had no content. So yeah. I thought, well, I'm going to start just cranking out content. Um, I had my own email list with a hundred thousand people on it. I sent out emails every week. I how did you get build the email list just over time? Well, back, yeah, back then it was interesting. There were these um, email aggregators, so you would go to a site, and when you landed there, there would be a little pop up, and the pop up hmm. would say, "If you like this site, you'll probably like these e-zines." And then you could click on the ones you wanted, hit yeah. submit, and it subscribed to all of them. And oh. so I did that. Um, I. I think they paid us two cents for every one we collected for them and yeah. we paid five cents for every email they got for us for our subscription. So um, I was pumping out a lot of people to join other people's e-zines, but so much so that I barely ever paid anything for all the ones that they sent back my way. I mean, as long as you're sending them two and a half times as many as, as they're providing for you, it's free, right? Two and a half cents uh -huh. and, and uh, or two cents and five cents. So okay. I built my list primarily that way. Okay. Then so, and you started doing speeches, started, uh, you, are you traveling with the speeches at this point and, and traveling across yeah. the country? Yeah. Yep. yep. And then I how did my you... first big one I did, I got hired by Cisco Systems and they took me to um, um, Sun River, Oregon, uh, hmm. down in Bend is where we did that. Uh, we did that um, speaking engagement. I think I got 3000 bucks for it. That was like my first big one. Wow. I thought, you know. Yeah, that's big. So then how did you come across Jim Rohn? Because Jim Rohn is, uh, for people who don't know who that is, I mean, I'm sure most people know who Tony Robbins is. And Tony Robbins' mentor was Jim Rohn. You actually wrote a book with him, 12 Pillars of Success. Yeah, I spent the last, yeah, I spent the last seven years of Jim's life. I, I started out, the reason they called me was I had been ghostwriting for a guy named John Maxwell. And okay. um, I wrote his national syndicated column. And then um, 
they called me up, asked me if I'd ghostwrite for Jim. And I said, no, I don't want to ghostwrite anymore, but I'll co-write with him. And so they said, great. We wrote the Jim Rohn one-year program, which is a one-year success program based around 12 pillars of success. And then when we were done with that, I said, well, why don't we write a book that'll kind of synopsize it and then drive people over to join the, 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 uh, the full one-year program. And uh, that has become a, a big bestseller. And we've sold over a million copies of that book. So. Oh, wow. That's, that's insane. And then you guys had a... Um... Or tell me about the TV show. There's a tele or web television series for on marketing and uh, motivational content. Well, there was a, a network called TSTN, the Success Training Network, and okay. uh, they uh, they put a lot of money into it. I mean, it was a it was a real deal. I mean, it was a very wealthy guy out of Dallas who had the money to really fund it right. And um, so they gave me a TV show called Made for Success, where I interviewed successful business people and authors and politicians and you know all that kind of stuff. And then. Uh, and then they wanted Zig Ziglar to do a TV show called True Performance. And Zig was getting older in age. And uh, I was selling a lot of Zig Ziglar programs through Costco and Sam's Club through my publishing company. So I had a relationship with them. I sent them a lot of money every quarter in royalties. Mm. And so I was down there in Dallas for my show anyway. So they said, you know, Chris, would you be interested in co-hosting Zig's TV show? So I had my own called Made for Success. And then I co-hosted Zig Ziglar's TV show called True Performance. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So I, I read an article about you in Forbes. I think that's how I came across you. And you were saying that uh, for people who want to be a speakers as a career, 95% make less than $10,000 per speech, but that doesn't sound too bad to me. They said, you said the sweet spots around $6,000. Um, but you said by 2013, you were making $20,000 a speech. That's like just insane to me, but it's competitive yeah. uh, thing, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that are out there, uh, you know, claiming to be speakers that may not have the experience that you have. Yeah. If you get fired from your corporate job, next step is speaker. Uh, or <laughs> really? Or, or business coach, right? Yeah. Um, when the National Speaker Association first started up in the 70s, I think there was 100 members. Okay. Now there's about 2,500 members and probably another 15,000 former members. Um, I know some speakers bureaus have 20,000 speakers in their database. And, uh, and if you want to see how many there are, go to LinkedIn and type your city in and say, uh, you know, Seattle motivational speaker or Phoenix motivational speaker, and you will find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who call themselves speakers. Um, and uh, most of them make no money at all. Um, there are very few long-term professional speakers. Uh, there's a way to do it and a way to build your business. And a lot of people don't take it like, they don't view it like a business. You know, if yeah. they were starting a Subway sandwich shop, they would do it like a business. When you're doing professional speaking, a lot of people just go, to, well, it's a hobby and I'm really good at speaking and I like it and it pays well. But they don't, they don't invest money in marketing or, you know, their website or their materials or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. They don't yeah. really take it seriously like a business. Right. Because you kind of can't just be, I mean, I guess you could just be a speaker, but usually even Tony Robbins, all these guys, they have books, they have uh, DVD material, they have podcasts. I mean, you have a podcast that you got to do like all these different successful things. One. What's that? The successful one. The successful yeah. one. Okay. But I'll tell you what, when this COVID, when COVID hit, yeah. I, I said 80% of all speakers will be gone at the end of this because they have no way to make money. All their, the only way they can make money. I know speakers that used to do pretty well. They're driving Uber now. Um, you know, they used to do 30 speeches a year at 10 grand a pop. Well, now you're not doing any speeches. And now you're making nothing because you don't have an audio program. You don't have a membership program. You don't have a video course. You don't have any of that stuff. You were hoping that somebody would keep hiring you. 
And, um, you know, I know a guy that was doing 80. Oh, you're breaking up. Grand to pop. And he, any income for the last. And, uh, and so ones, guys like, guys like Tony Robbins and those guys yeah. and myself, you know, we have programs and, and yeah, we lost, the, we lost the speaking income, but we didn't lose our income, our royalty income, our membership income, none of that. Wow. Yeah. So some of the companies you spoke for, like you said, Cisco, Microsoft, General Electric, AT&T, Harvard Business School. So out of those, does, do any of them pay different? Like does Microsoft pay the best? Cause they got the Bill Gates money. So I'm thinking they would offer you the most money or you just have a flat fee and say, this is what I charge. Um, it's basically, here's a flat fee. Here's what okay. I've charged. You know, I, 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 that's the thing about is there's no cost of goods, right? I mean, yeah. if you, if you're making jeans and it costs you $10 to make jeans and you sell them for 40, you can't really negotiate too much because you have heart. You, you certainly can't sell it for nine because you'd lose a dollar every time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in the speaking business, there's no cost of goods. So it's a little bit, right. people can name whatever price they want to name, right? Yeah. You know, they can do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. I have a little bit of wiggle room on my speaking fees. Uh, depends on if it's a new client. It depends on if there's spinoff business. It depends on if they'll let me sell my products there. There's a lot of different things that, that go into that um, equation. Yeah. So, and tell me about the Harvard Business School. So, was that intimidating at all? Because I would think I, that they have a certain level, like they, they would be ju- maybe judgmental because it's Ivy League and, you know, you didn't go to Ivy League. So, how, why are you going to tell us what what to do and what success is. We know more than you and we're from Harvard, right? I and mean, that's got to be a little bit intimidating. Well, they, they go to Harvard. They're not from Harvard yet. They're going to Harvard. <laughs> true, that, true. Right? None of those kids have done anything at that point. That's true. Um, uh, they, they typically go on to do great things. But um, I, always, I always quote Tony Robbins. Tony always says, I have my doctorate in results. Um, nice. So uh, I have my doctorate in results. I've done a lot. I've been successful, and um, and they brought me in to talk to the students about leadership. Uh, I was in one of the student organizations. Brought me in to speak to their to their organization, and um, and actually, they I think they just paid my expenses. They didn't even pay me for that. But you know, it's kind of like you know, people say, uh, well, if the president offered you a job in his administration, would you do it? And everybody always says, when the president asks you to do a job, you do it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when Harvard Business School asks you to yeah. come and give a speech. Go That's give us because it's the most prestigious business school in America. And at the very least, it's on your resume. Yeah, that's a good resume builder for sure. Another good resume builder you had was uh, you wrote a book called uh, Angel Inside, which I found this really interesting. I heard you talking about this. Uh, was, you, you talk about how Michelangelo's dad wanted him to be a politician, which is really interesting. And you talk about kind of so how do people find their passion? Like, what if they don't know? But what if they don't know what they want to do? I guess is my question with that one because. Uh, Michelangelo, he probably knew that he wanted to do art, even though his dad wanted him to do uh, politician stuff. Um, what if you just have no idea what your talent is? How do you find that? Well, I think you you have a, a lot of questions you have to ask yourself. One would be, what is your what is it you're, you're passionate about? I mean, if you're passionate about surfing, you could go start a surf shop, or you could be a surf instructor, or you could make surfboards, or mm-hmm. you know whatever. If you're if you're interested in science. Um, but you know, you got to think about what does the day to day look like? Is that a job that I'm going to be happy and fulfilled about? Sometimes the job that you're, or the, the, the topic that you're passionate about is not something you'd want to do every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're really, really passionate about science, I don't know that you would, it, you, you have to ask yourself, do I want to sit in a laboratory every day for 40 years? And I asked that of a young student recently and she said, no, 
I, I can't <laughs> imagine going to the same little laboratory every single day for four right. years. And so as we talked, um, I think that, you know, probably what she's going to go into is law, mm-hmm. um, but she could do law like um, patent and trademark uh, intellectual property, medical, uh, medical stuff, you know, so uh, there are ways to pursue your passion in a profession that pays you the kind of money that you want. I also work down here uh, with a group called JAG, um, Jobs for Arizona, uh, uh, I can't remember the name, but it's, for, it's basically for uh, underprivileged kids who want to go to college, and we go down and we help them write their resumes and things like that. And the last time I was down there, they, um, they asked the question, um, you know, what should I do for a living and what should I do this? Should I do that? And the first question I ask them is, is how important is money to you? Because if money is really important to you, that crosses out a lot of professions. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. I think it's one of the things that teachers, one of the things that teachers realize too far into their career. On one hand, I want to teach youth. I want to go and, and I want to help kids. I want to teach math. I want to, you know, whatever. That's their passion. Now they're five years into it and they're not making any money and they're never going to make any money. You know, my, my brother was a fireman and uh, he knew there was a top on that. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't going to go and say, I, de- I deserve $300,000 a year. You want $300,000 a year, get a side gig or quit your job and go do something else. He always had a side gig. Uh, he was a professional golfer before he was a fireman. So he started a little golf club making company and uh, he made money selling customized hickory, uh, hickory shaft, um, old school uh, golf clubs like they originally were with hickory shafts. And so he would make these golf clubs and, and that's how he supplemented his income and things like that. So his passion was golf, but his job was because he, he got into golf, the golf business. He was a golf pro at a few places. He hated it. Mm. loves golf, hated the golf business. Uh-huh. So he became a fireman and golfed for fun. So finding out where to, you know, whether you want, like you said, you want to do that passion in a job. Cause then that takes away the fun of it. When you're a golf pro, you're not actually just getting out there and golfing for fun. You're having to like teach people who suck at golf like me. And so, yeah. Yes. Well, it's interesting. And people who complain about the price of the shirts and the golf thing right. and stuff like that. I mean, think about it. If you're into math, let's say you're really into math. You can be a math teacher in junior high for $35,000 a year, or you can study quantitative trading and go to Wall Street and make $3 million a year. It's both math. Both of them are math. Yeah, true. Definitely. Well, um, getting back to the, the speaking that you do, the speeches. So I, I don't know if you've heard this uh, story, uh, joke that Jerry Seinfeld does about uh, when he talks about uh, giving speeches. The number one fear uh, is speaking in front of people. The number two fear uh, is dying. So he says his joke is like, if you're at a funeral, you're better off being in the casket uh, than doing the eulogy. So how do people give, get over the fear of speaking? Not necessarily uh, that everyone's going to be a professional speaker like yourself, but um, you know, maybe they have to give a speech at a convention or an office meeting or something like that. What advice would you have for people who get nervous or afraid of speaking in front of groups? I would tell them to remember that Seinfeld joke. Yeah. And here's why. Let's say you're the director of HR at a large company and they say, we need you to talk to our sales group uh, for 20 minutes and there's a thousand salespeople out there. Now, what most people are thinking is, oh my gosh, what if I suck? What if I'm bad? What if I flub my words? They're going to be, they're going to think I'm horrible. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to be able to show my face around work. I'm a little, little. And you just let your brain spin out of control. What you need to remind yourself is they're sitting in the audience thinking, I'm glad it's him and not me, right? They, <laughs> yeah. expect, you to, they expect you to suck. They expect you to suck. Yeah. You're the HR director. You're not a professional speaker. 
Now, if you pay me $30,000 to show up and I suck, yeah. they're going to be outraged. Right. So, so this is what I tell people. You don't have anything to worry about. Nobody's sitting there judging you. They're sitting there thinking, I'm glad it's him and not me. <laughs> low expectations. So that's good to remember. And you also and say- they, you, they have low expectations. Yeah. You recommend that people memorize their speeches because uh, all the most famous uh, speeches didn't have PowerPoint. So you're not a big fan of PowerPoint then? Ah, people can use PowerPoint if they want, but I always say, could you imagine Martin Luther King Jr. on the mall giving his <laughs> I have a dream speech with PowerPoint? <laughs> I have a dream that little black yeah. boys and little, black, little yeah. white boys will walk down the street. And I'm going to show you a picture of that right here on slide one. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's the yeah. greatest speeches of human history were done without PowerPoint. And yet I think a lot of us rely on, on PowerPoint. Um, I, I'm not opposed to PowerPoint though. And, and what I say about memorizing your, I, I don't say memorize your speech. I may have said it. I don't mean that. What I mean is know your stuff. And I'll give you an example. I had a guy come up to me. I gave a 30 minute speech one time and I don't ever use notes. And a guy comes up to me afterwards. I was in Seattle actually in, in Issaquah. And he said, how in the world can you do 30 minutes with no notes. And I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I work at Boeing. I said, what do you do at Boeing? He said, I work on wing design. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay, cool. If I said to you right now, and I, if I hand you this microphone and say, give me 30 minutes on the design of a wing and how lift works and how it helps the airplane get airborne, could you do it? And he said, oh yeah, easy. And I said, there you go. You know your stuff. If you know your stuff, yeah. you talk about it. Well, speaking of wings, uh, you say that you don't think anybody in the speaking world who's a professional speaker, nobody, none of those people like wing it, right? They've all, they know, you said that you know exactly how people will respond when you do something because you've done it so many times. So you know exactly how this joke's going to land and all this. Is there ever surprises though? Have you ever like told a joke and go, wow, that usually kills. What's going on with this? Is the crowds different? Because I know with comedians, they talk about different crowds, you know, different jokes land differently. So... Sometimes, sometimes that happens, but I get rid of the jokes that don't land every time. I, re I remember, I don't remember what the joke was, but I remember about seven or eight years ago, I had a really funny line. I mean, I thought it was funny. I thought okay. it was so funny. I did it about five times. No one ever laughed and I never did it again. To this day, I can't even remember what it was, what the joke was, hmm. but I'm constantly honing, right? I mean, yeah. if, if Jerry Seinfeld, all those people, they go to these little tiny clubs and they practice. There'll be times mm -hmm. when Kevin Hart, Seinfeld, those guys, they're literally in these little clubs yep. with like 40 people and My they're saw their Kevin Hart off their notes. Yeah. That's right. They're trying, they're trying them out. If, if they do that five times and nobody laughs at a joke, it's not going into the Netflix special, right? right? Yeah. You know? And no, so you're, exactly right. you're, you're honing it. Yeah. Yeah, you're honing it. And so um, I, I do, I know. And you can watch a speech of mine that I gave um, probably 11 years apart. I think they're 11 years apart. You could pull them both up on YouTube, hit the play button, and they are 90% the same. Huh. Yeah, so you say that you apart. have kind of like a plug-and-play speech that you have four main points and you add stories and audience participation things. That way you can kind of drop things as needed. Like if they say you got 30 minutes, you can drop this and adjust it. Is that pretty common for speakers? Is that the way that usually they do it? Um, I don't know how other people do it. It's how I would recommend they do it. So when I coach people on, on how to become a professional speaker, I tell them to come up with an hour long speech mm -hmm. and and it should include an intro, it should include a setup, it should include four points, and it should include an ending. 
and that should be about an hour. If somebody says, I only need you for 45 minutes, you drop one of your points. Okay. If they say, I need you for an hour and 20 minutes, you add a uh, audience participation exercise or you know something like that. So it really is plug and play to be able to make it longer or shorter. Very cool. Very cool. So well, let's talk about the content in your speeches, the success principles. First of all, let's define success because you bring up a really good point about success. When people think about success, they think about money. Even when I, I, I'll say the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I really want to be successful. Like, oh, I don't care about money. Money's not important to me. And I'm like, well, I don't even, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about like actually being good at your craft and doing, because when, when you say that you ask people, who's the, you know, who's the most successful person, you know, they say Bill Gates, or maybe it's Jeff Bezos. Now a most successful woman is Oprah. And these are people that are, you know, billionaires and whatnot, but you success is more than just money, right? Yeah, our definition, our default definition, if I, if I were to say to you, hey, I got this friend, he's really successful, you would probably imagine a guy in a beautiful house driving a beautiful car with a big job, with a big office. That's how we, by default, mm-hmm. define success. But if you back people up for a minute and say, hey, okay, aside from money, if, if, if a guy had $20 million in the bank, but he was going on his sixth marriage, mm-hmm. would you consider him successful? And you'd go, mm, maybe not, right? <laughs> right. You know, um, and so it's, it's not just about money. Now, money's part of success, and, and money can be a way of measuring success. Um, but you could have a wildly successful school teacher who wins school teacher of the year in America, and they might not have two nickels to rub together. Are they unsuccessful? No, I don't think they're unsuccessful. I think they're successful at impacting lives and, and those kinds of things. Um, so I tend, not to, I tend not to look at it in regard to money. Um, I, I always say that true success is not the overachievement in one area, but it's the balanced achievement in all areas. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be healthy. We want to have a, a, a solid emotional um, stability. We want to be growing intellectually. Um, we want to, you know, uh, be financially secure. And I think that's really success is to be able to say, I've got a well-rounded life. Yeah. You say character and skill are two of the most important things when you look at success. And, a, and, and almost thing. everybody focuses on skill, and mm-hmm. I tend to focus on character because um, skills you can learn. Yeah, character sure. is you know character you can learn character as well. I mean, you can become convicted of of something and say I'm going to change this and and not do this anymore. But but skill is the thing that we tend to focus on. When I ask my audiences, I'll say, how many of you have ever been to a skill training seminar? Everybody raises their hands. Everybody has gone to a seminar to learn how to do accounting or be a better speaker or how to sell or, you know, all the skills, how to have a better marriage, you know, all the how to's. But then I say, how many of you ever been to a character training seminar? Virtually no one ever raises their hand because we tend to, uh, we tend to not really focus on character. We tend to focus on skill. And what I believe is that long-term success comes from a, foundational character that allows you to be in the game for a long period of time. So how do you work on character besides a character building seminars or other things that you recommend people do? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to really do some deep internal work. You have Jim Rohn, you know, they always called him America's foremost business philosopher. I think Mm -hmm. you have to have a philosophy of life. You have to understand morality. You have to understand, um, you know, what character really is. You have to understand why it's important to always tell the truth. You know, uh, I, I, being a truth teller, telling the truth is, is part of what I believe to be a, a great character. Um, but there are a lot of people that have never really thought through 
um, how not telling the truth can affect their life. So in my seminars and in my book, uh, in my book, The Art of Influence, actually, there's a, a I, I write business fiction. They're, they're little stories that teach life lessons. Hmm. Now, in the book, Art of Influence, it's a, a billionaire who takes this young, recent uh, business school graduate uh, with him on a business trip to sort of teach him some lessons as a favor to his grandmother, who he knew as, uh, was his nanny when he was growing up. And so the first stop they go to is they go to a, um, a business that this billionaire is thinking about buying. And they come in and the CFO comes in first and um, he's sitting there and he says, the CEO will be in here, be here any minute. Um, and so they're waiting in the boardroom and an admin walks in to the uh, CFO and he says, so-and-so wants to know if you sent that package over. And he goes, oh, I forgot. Um, just tell him I mailed it yesterday and it must, or tell him I mailed it a couple days ago. It must be lost in the mail. It'll be coming soon. And then the CEO walks in, they have their business meeting, they go out to the car and the, um, the kid that he brought along with him, he assigned him during the meeting to look through the financials and the numbers, right? So they're having their meeting and the kid's looking through the financials. They get out to the car and the billionaire says, what do you think? Should I buy it? And the guy goes, yeah, I mean, the numbers look great. And, and uh, I think it would be a really good thing to add to your portfolio. And the guy says, oh, I would never buy that company. And he says, why not? He says, the CFO is a liar. He said, we sat there and watched him lie to a client yeah. of his. How do we know those numbers are right? How do we know those numbers are true? We don't. We've already, we've already defined the fact that the CFO is willing to lie. Right. Now we have to ask the question if he's willing to lie to us. So even, and, you're saying even the little things matter on things like that. Like if you have true character, even like little lies are important. Here's the one I always get. So if your wife walks out and says, does this dress make my butt look big? What do you say? Yeah. Well, what you don't say is, no, it's the cheesecake that makes your butt look big. <laughs> that's, you never want to say that. No, ever. that's a good tip. Yeah, yeah. But, but here's what you say. You know what dress I think you look fabulous in? I think you look fabulous in that red dress. Do you want to wear that tonight? Hmm. You're telling the truth, but you're not, you know, because most people say, well, I lie if it's going to make people feel better. I just yeah. don't believe in that. Okay. I think that if you have a decent relationship with somebody, they can be honest with you. You know, I'll say it to my wife every now and then. Does this shirt go with these pants? Like if we're going out with friends or something, should I wear this with it? Yeah. And she says, I don't wear the other one. I don't go, oh, I'm such a horrible shirt picker. How am I so <laughs> Yeah. I'm 54 years old. I can't pick the right shirts. Right. I just go put the other shirt on. Yeah. There you no go. Big deal. Yeah. So speaking of uh, going out with friends and stuff, uh, I like this thing you have on association. So there's three different associations. Can you explain these? You have expanded associations with people, limited associations and disassociations. I think this is like a, one of the most important principles that you've, you talk about. It's one of the most important things I've ever heard. Yeah. And Jim Rohn and I did that together. Um, I classify everybody into one of those three categories, expanded associations, limited associations, or disassociations. Expanded associations are people either at your level or above you who um, you're going to be able to have a mutually beneficial relationship. You give to them, they give to you, everybody, it's win-win, it's mutually beneficial. You can learn from them, grow from them, and you will invest in their life as well. Mutually beneficial. You should expand those associations to whatever degree you can. Spend as much time with those people as you can. Then you have limited associations. And limited associations are those associations with people who are not necessarily 
going to be really good for you. You're not going in the same direction. You don't have the same, you know, interests, um, or they might even be a bad guy. I don't know. Um, but you have to be in a relationship with them. It's your, it's your uncle who, you know, you don't really like that much. Mm-hmm. And he always teases you. So you, you limit your association to him to the family reunions, right? That's when mm-hmm. you see your uncle. Other than that, you're not calling him up, asking to go do things with him. It might be the person in the cubicle next to you. Maybe they're negative. Maybe they're, you know, they're just negative Nelly about everything. Well, you're not going to want to start going to lunch with that person because you don't want to let their negativity creep into your life. Right. So you have to have association with them, but you limit it to the work that has to be done with them. And then disassociations are people that are not good for you. They're not going in the same. It doesn't even necessarily mean that they're bad people. It just means they're going in the different direction. They're not somebody who's going to build you up. They're not somebody that's going to be wind beneath your wings or, you know, wind in your sails or anything like that. And, um, and so you need to disassociate with those people, not spend time with those folks. Um, now I'm not talking about, I always get these, well, what about this? Well, I'm not talking about people who you can help, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody, I'm talking about a, a colleague relationship, a mutual uh, relationship. If there's somebody who's having a real struggle in their life, yeah, you can, you can stoop down and help them, give them a hand, help them, but you're not asking for them to invest in your life. I think most of us have what I call relationships of convenience. These are the people who you went to college with and, and they've always been your friend. And so they're still your friend. And you say, well, are they good? Is your relationship good for you? Well, not really. I mean, he does this and he does that. And no, not really. Well, why are you friends with him? I've been friends with him forever. <laughs> so that's why you're friends with him. Yeah. You're friends with him because you've been friends with him forever. It's kind of like uh, uh, Paris Hilton. They, they always used to say, she's famous for being famous. Well, we're friends because we're friends, right? Well, yeah. Why are you friends? Because we're friends. But is it good for you? Is it propelling you forward? And if it's not, you should disassociate. Now, I don't mean call them up and say, you know what? I've been giving some thought. You're a really rotten <laughs> human being, and I don't want to see you again. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. Yeah. I'm just suggesting reemphasizing your time spend with people who are going to be good for you. We have yeah. limited resources of time here. We don't have time to spend with everybody. So we need to focus down to the people who we're going to have good, mutually beneficial relationships with. And I know people that um, have family members, I mean, not just like a cousin or an uncle, and you talk about that limited relationship, but I know people that, you know, their mom or their dad is so toxic to them that they have cut off relationship with their mom or dad. I mean, do you think that is sometimes beneficial? I mean, if it gets to that point where you, you feel like, you know what, I just can't have a relationship with you anymore, even though you're my mom or my dad. I, I think there are lots of people like that. I have some friends that um, uh, their dad was an alcoholic and they went to him, the, the son, my friend went to his dad and said, dad, I love you. You are amazing in so many ways, but your alcoholism is destroying our family get togethers. And I, I'm just telling you right now, either quit drinking or you will not see your grandchildren again because I'm not going to be doing this with you because it's too toxic for my children. And to his credit, he gave up alcohol, cold turkey, and they had another 10 great years together. Doesn't always work out that way. Um, Circling back to the fact that my mother used to beat the tar out of us. I have a sister who I've not spoken to in probably seven years. Uh, I can remember the last phone call we had with her, uh, that I had with her. Um, every phone call was about how horrible my mom was. Now, seven years ago, I was 47 and my mom had been dead for years. And, um, 
uh, I told my sister, I said, I do not want to continue having these conversations. She's dead. I know the troubles I had with her and that you had with her, but I've reconciled that. I've moved beyond it. I found a healthy spot in my life, and I don't want to rehash it with you three days a week. If you can't stop talking about mom, I can't continue to be in a relationship with you. And she's never called me since. And that's fine. It's, wow. it's fine. Um, because, and I would love to have a relationship with her. I'd love yeah. to, you yeah. know, find that we can talk about, that we can both be thrilled by, um, you know. And, and oftentimes I, I see it now with politics. I have friends who I will say they're on the other side of me politically. And God, I can't wait for these next three months to be over with. Although I'm concerned, <laughs> me both, I'm concerned yeah. that once the election, I'm, I'm concerned that once the election happens, it doesn't matter who wins, half yeah. the country is going to want to burn the buildings down, right? right yeah. um, but I have said to numerous friends of mine, I've said, I am begging you, please stop talking to me about this. It is going to ruin our relationship. I understand your perspective. I disagree with you. I, I'm, I am fully in support of you having your own opinion, and I laud that. That's great. I just disagree. We've talked about it. Anything beyond this is just going to make us mad at each other. Let's enjoy our friendship. What a novel and, uh, idea. This is genius. This is brilliant right here. I'm telling you, Chuck, it's novel. It's yeah, novel. People it's a novel idea. All right. <laughs> that guy, I said to him, I said to him, I am begging you. I'm begging you. Let's please stop. <laughs> I love this. Because because I like you in so many ways. I like you. Yes. Um, let's focus on that part. And he could not let up. <laughs> and and we, we, I finally uh -huh. just deleted him. And, and I don't have any interactions with him anymore. So if you see that stuff on social media, because I'm sure you're on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and there's a friend that you have, do you just, do you hide them from your newsfeed then so you don't see their political updates? Um, well, so I, it's interesting. I, <laughs> I, am, I am very political. I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2010. That's right, in 2010. So I, I certainly have my opinions. Sure. And, but when I, when I post my opinions, and, and most of my friends on Facebook are my opinion. Okay. And so um, when I post them, I will say I'm really looking for people who have different opinions. And it happened today. It happened on my feed today. And one woman who I really like, she's great. I've done business with her. She disagrees with me. She jumped on. She was respectful to me. I was respectful to her. And we were able to converse about it. Now, there's some people who will do that. And you're, this, this is the hidden gem of your podcast right here. I'm going to save so many people so much angst and, and emotional distress when you post something that you, that you have a group of people that you know are just not going to like it, you can choose, when you post, you can choose, send it to public, anybody can see it, friends, only your friends can see it, or there's a button that says friends accept. There you go. I have about 20, I have 20 people on that exception list, and they are the people that I know are just <laughs> going to come unglued on my political post. Okay. And- once you come unglued and start screaming at me and my friends and calling us names, you go on the accept list. And, and then you don't, have to see my, you don't have to see my beliefs, and I don't have to listen to your response to them. But I have lots of friends who disagree with me who are not on that list yeah, because okay. we have respectful dialogue. Yeah, that's what I, I don't mind listening to other people's opinions. I mean, that's why I have the podcast. I mean, I hear people from all different sorts of uh, walks of life. And it's, to me, it's fascinating. I like hearing different perspectives and different views. So that kind of helps me form my own. 
I mean, I have my own that I've brought up with and stuff, but you know, it does make me think sometimes like, Oh, I never thought of it from your perspective. Like that is interesting. You know? So I think it's interesting to hear. And otherwise, why would we have these conversations? Cause you know, yeah. Here's what I do. You want, you want to freak somebody out sometime? Do this to them. When one of your friends who's diametrically opposed to you politically or religious mm-hmm. or whatever, ask them this question. I, here's what I say to people. Hey, let's do something fun. Let's take 10 minutes, the next 10 minutes, you argue my position and I'll argue your position. Ooh, that would be fun. And you know what? You know, most of them can't do it because they've never oh. considered another position. That's interesting. You could take the opposite political position of mine and yeah. I could make the argument for it because I understand it. I disagree yeah. with the conclusion, but I understand yeah. the process and I can, and I can do that. And, uh, and most people can't, a lot of people on my side can't, a lot of people on the other side can't, but it just means that they've never done the work to try to truly understand where the other people are coming from. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Well, speaking of politics, I was going to ask you, so you ran for the Senate before, um, our governor in Arizona is, uh, it's interesting cause I'm kind of an independent, but, um, you know, our governor is, uh, he's kind of, uh, hated by left and I get, I get updates from my left friends that don't like him. And I get updates from my right friends that don't like him. So have you thought of running for governor? That might be uh there might be no. an opening soon. No, 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 no. I'd rather, I'd rather be a pontificator and write books about okay. it. Okay. Um, I got to tell you running, for, running for politics is brutal. Really? It's brutal. There was an old book written back when president was the president and it was called a uh, blood sport. And let me tell you, it's blood sport. These folks will find anything and everything and, and they will take the good things and turn them bad and they'll take the bad things and make you look like, you know, the second coming of the devil. And so that's why a lot of good people don't go into politics. Sure. Um, you, you probably remember, you probably remember the, the, um, the former CEO of T-Mobile, John Stanton. You probably remember that name from your Seattle days. He started Voice Stream. He okay. started Western Wireless, sold them to T-Mobile became the CEO, and now he's the primary owner of the Seattle Mariners. And John is a center-right person. He's, he's smack dab in the middle. He's a little bit right, but not much at all. He's pretty, pretty middle of the road. He's got an incredible business career. He's got enough money that he doesn't ask, have to ask anybody for the money to run for office. I have begged him to run for office. I've said, I even gave him the America needs you speech. Uh-huh. And he said, never going to do it. And you know, <laughs> in many ways, I don't blame him. Yeah. I don't blame him. I mean, he is nice. He's kind. He's, he's middle of the road. He's a wildly successful business guy. He's been married to the same woman for umpteen 40 years. He's got great kids. Nothing wrong with this guy. But I'll tell you what, if he threw his hat in the ring, they would find all sorts of wrong things. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about, you know, being a teacher or being in, in a lab all day is like, you might have an interest in this, but is it really something you want to spend your whole day with? Cause that's, a, that's like you said, it's a rough job for sure. But um, so if people, you know, if, you say, if you're, if you're Chuck, if you're a billionaire, if you're yeah. a billionaire and your option is to go spend the weekend in, uh, in DC with Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell or sit on your hundred million dollar <laughs> yacht outside of con France, <laughs> Uh, yeah. what are you going to choose? Uh, I'll, I'll choose the yacht. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But, um, uh, you do say that people <laughs> should achieve their, uh, their biggest dreams. Uh, I love this philosophy too. I have the same philosophy. Uh, and I think I have the, I, you probably have the same philosophy as me in terms of just, you know, trying to achieve big things and failing and that's okay. And then learning from the failures and trying to take steps up. But how do you know, 
when it's time to give up on something? Like at what point, if somebody wants to really, whether it's run for office or be a teacher or uh, be an actor or a comedian, whatever, uh, how do they know when it's time, maybe it's time to give up on that dream and do something else? Well, I think that the easiest answer is if it becomes intolerable or toxic to yourself. Um, but usually when I get asked this question, I refer them to Seth Godin's book called The Dip. I, I think it was called The Dip. Okay. And, and it's all about how do, you, how do you come to that conclusion? Because you're right. Everybody's like, just never, ever, 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 never, ever quit. They always quote Winston Churchill. Never, 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 never quit. Bad advice. Because there are sometimes you should quit. Yeah. Um, Brett Favre should have quit when he quit. Instead, he just <laughs> went on and on and on yeah. and on. And I'm like, please, just go get some counseling. You need to quit. <laughs> um, but that book does a pretty good job on helping okay. people come to the, you know, answer that question. Should I quit? Yeah. Because it seems like it does take time to, to grow something, to do something. Uh, you got to, you, you have to give it, I mean, it's got to, for a lot of times it is years. It may be years to, to you reach a level of success that you want to achieve. But, uh, you know, at some point, yeah, if someone's doing it five, 10 years and you haven't achieved success, maybe it's. Well, I was, I'll, I'll tell you what, I was talking yesterday to somebody, can't remember who, maybe one of my daughters. So I was telling her about William Wilberforce. Do you know the name William Wilberforce? No. Who's that? William Wilberforce was, uh, he was in the, um, whatever they call him, House of Lords or whatever in, in England. He was part of the legislature. Okay. 21 years in a row, 21 years in a row, he brought before that legislative body uh, a bill or whatever they call him in the UK to abolish slavery. 21 years in a row, he tried to abolish slavery. On the 22nd year, it passed. Wow. So uh, it, it took him 22 years. I look at a guy like uh, Mark Victor Hansen. My friend Mark Victor Hansen uh, co-wrote a book with a guy named uh, Jack Canfield. Uh, they wrote a book, a small little book called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Yeah. They were passed on, they were passed on by over 100 publishers. They finally got a little tiny health publishing company. I, I don't even, it was like United Health Books or something. I was some hmm. little rinky dink publisher that published books about health. And they thought, well, chicken soup, people drink chicken soup when they're sick. Yeah, we'll do it. That series has now sold just under 600 million copies. Oh, yeah, that's a bit, that's a great story. That also reminds me that have you heard the uh, Colonel Sanders story. You know that one? That yeah. guy was like, what was he like in his seventies yeah. or something? Well, and he, parts of it. he was driving around he was some beat up car. When he started. 67. Sorry. Yeah. And he yep. knocked on all these doors trying to sell his recipe. I can't remember what the number was, but it was like, it was like 10,000 people rejected him. I don't know how true it is, but I mean, it was clearly yeah. a lot of people had said no until finally somebody said, okay, sure. So, I mean, if you have the tenacity of a 67 year old man, so I think that that's pretty inspiring. Well, I, I have a friend of mine. I have a friend of mine in Seattle. He, he graduated in the same class as John McCain. He's very old uh, from the Naval Academy. And he used to run a company called Data.io. And Data.io was the biggest tech company in Seattle. This guy was king of tech in Seattle. And in the late 70s, early 80s, he and his CFO went to a restaurant in Bellevue to meet with a couple guys who were looking for an investment in their company. They went in. They sat there, I think they ate at uh, uh, 12 Baskets in Bellevue, and uh, uh, right down by the Bellevue Mall. And um, this, these two young guys offered him 10% of their company for a million dollars. 
And he looked at these guys and he said, well, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll get back to you. They walked out to the parking lot. They got in the car. He said, no sooner did both of our doors shut. We turned and looked at each other and we laughed our asses off. That was the funniest thing ever. These two long-haired hippies wanted a million dollars for 10% of their company. They're valuing this company at $10 million. It's outrageous. Wow. They had just had lunch with Bill and Paul Allen. He oh. could have owned 10% of Microsoft. But you know what he said? He said, I would make the same decision today because nobody knew that it was going to become Microsoft. But what if they'd have quit? What if they said the, the, the smartest guy in technology in Seattle just said we were fools? Yeah. We should just quit. He would have never become the richest man in the world, now the second richest man in the world. That is crazy. What other uh, motivational speakers do you follow now? Like, are you familiar with uh, Rob Dial, uh, the Mindset Mentor? Po- that's one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, that's a good one. Or is there other people that you're following right now? Like I said, there's 20,000 of them. Yeah, <laughs> true, true. Um, you know, I like, uh, you know, David Goggins. I just read his book. Oh, he's um, great. I have a lot of friends, you know, my my friends are are people that I I read. I'm actually I'm actually rereading this book right now, Self Matters by Phil McGraw. I'm okay. not a huge Phil McGraw fan, but that's the one of the best personal that's one of the best personal development books ever written. It was his really? first book, Self Matters. Okay. Um, yeah, but I got lots of great friends. Waldo Waldman's a good buddy of mine. He's one of the top speakers in America today. Uh, Jason Hewlett, um, Phil Jones from the UK is a sales trainer. There's a lot of good the guys, old standards like Mark, uh, Mark Sanborn is a good buddy of mine. Um, there's a lot of great speakers out there today. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, I, read a, I did a men's mastermind a couple of years ago. We went through um, Lewis Howe's book, Masks of Masculinity. And it was a really good book about being a man uh, and the masks that we wear. Um, so I try to read a wide variety of different kinds of people. And, and oh, that's stay, great. But I'm not, I don't follow like I listen to everything they do or yeah, you know, okay. read everything that's they wrote. Um, so I always end with a, a charity. I, I can't remember if I told you that, I, uh, to, is there a charity or nonprofit that you are passionate about promoting or that you spent, give your time to? Yeah. I mean, anything that a lot of my stuff is, is through, you know, church or whatever. I, I do mm-hmm. a lot from missions and, and that, um, I just started working, you know, you're down here in the, in the Phoenix area. There's yeah. an area called sunny slope. Um, in Wenatchee, Sunny Slope is the really nice neighborhood. Wenatchee, right. Washington is the right. nice neighborhood. In, in Phoenix, it's the really not-so-nice neighborhood. And right before COVID uh, hit, we started working with uh, a group down there. We go down on Sunday mornings. We feed breakfast. We do a little church service for them. Uh, you know, we give them basic uh, hygiene things and, and put together okay. packages and stuff like that. So, um, so we help out there. Anything really to do with kids. Um, I've just started helping a group that's doing dog rescue stuff. So, you know, really just trying to give back in a wide variety of areas. But I always tell people, just find out something you're passionate about, you know, something that, something that makes you cry. That's a, good, that's a good thing. Like, I know, and I realized this years and years ago, there's a lot of people that are in hardships, and it just, I know that it's hard, but it doesn't, like, move me. But when I see little kids in other countries that you know, they've got that distended stomach because they can't even get a bowl of rice for the day, hmm. um, those are the things that always, you know, sort of turn my heart a little bit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when I 
kids were growing up, they were always like, dad, there's nothing we can buy you that, that you wouldn't already buy yourself. If you wanted it, you'd already have it because you've got the money to buy it. So for years and years, my kids um, got a, a, um, um, a um, magazine or a, um, what do you call it? Like a little um, pamphlet or brochure pamphlet. or whatever. Okay. Yeah. From one, one of two groups, either Heifer International, Red Heifer International or Compassion International. Hmm. And I would tell them, buy me a gift by spending however much money you want on one of these things that helps people in the third world. Oh, so um, each group, um, World Vision, Compassion International, Red Heifer International is a non-religious one. The first two are sort of religious oriented. Okay. Red Heifer International is a non-religious one. Okay. Um, but, the, but, the, but the ones that World Vision and they, those guys do, they, it's not like they require religion in order to be helpful. Yeah, yeah. But you can buy a goat for people. You can buy uh, beehives <laughs> for people. Um, you can buy animals that will produce either meat or milk or hmm. honey or any of those kinds of things. And so for years and years, my kids would buy a goat for some poor person in a third world and give it to me as a gift. That is um, awesome. And, and I love it. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't need another watch. I don't need yeah. a couple cigars. I don't need a bottle of liquor. I can right. get those things myself. But if you want to spend your $50 and, and buy some woman in a village somewhere uh, a couple of beehives that she can start producing and selling honey, that's fantastic. That's amazing. That's great. Well, you've done so many amazing things. Pe people need to go to your website. Um, that's where everything is, right? Is that where all your links are for Facebook and social yep. media and your YouTube channel? You have a YouTube channel. I've watched some of your videos. They're great. They're fabulous. They could hire you if they have the money, right? Yeah, I do. I do personal coaching. I, I do six yeah, month and 12 speed, month coaching programs. Uh, for they want you to come speak, speak at, the, at their company, right? I mean, if they want you don't come cheap though. Well, you know what? During the COVID uh, with the, with the, uh, the virtual ones, I'm pretty really, really flexible in my virtual ones because I oh, get okay. to sit here in my office. I, as soon as yeah. we're done, I can go back and do something else. I don't have to get on an airplane. So yeah, I'm more than happy to do um, virtual kinds of stuff. Yeah. So you're doing virtual uh, speeches and getting paid for that uh, via Zoom. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, because yeah. I'm, I'm guessing the world needs some motivation right now because people are, they're stressed out. They're, they're giving up and they're angry. Like you said, I, the election coming up too. And yeah. yeah. My number one speech right now I'm giving is thriving in tough and challenging times. You know, how do you, how do you not just survive, but how do you thrive? That's great. That's now I'll have to listen to more of that. So, well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Everybody needs to follow Chris on social media. You're on Facebook. Are you on Twitter too? I know you, I saw you on Instagram. Uh, yeah, Twitter at Chris Widener. Okay. Uh, Facebook and Instagram are at Chris Widener Speaker and then ChrisWidener.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Chris. Sure thing. Thanks okay. for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Such an energizing conversation with Chris Widener. What a smart and insightful guy. Uh, just dropping lots of pearls of wisdom there. So definitely follow Chris on social media. Check out his website. Get his books. Um, you can even watch some of his speeches on YouTube for free. Um, speaking of YouTube, uh, I started uploading my episodes there. So that's just another way to get the podcast. And we're going to start having video for some of these episodes as well. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. If you've never listened to my show before, I recommend checking out the uh, 50th episode that I just posted, which is Eclipse Highlights, where I take one-minute clips from each of the interviews that I've had. Um, and that was a lot of fun to do. Uh, if you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
And if you really want to go above and beyond, you can write me a review on iTunes and that'll really help me out. So thank you so much and have a great day or night. And remember to shoot for the moon.